0: From New York City, welcome to Mark to Markets. I'm your host, Mark Penziner. On this podcast, we discuss topics related to your money, markets, and issues near and far from personal finance. You can always reach me at mark.penziner at bernstein.com or call me directly at 212-969-6655. Well, 2018 is in the books and it was one heck of a ride. I'm going to take podcaster's privilege today and jump out of the interviewer chair and give you my thoughts on where the market stands. Now, I doubt you want to hear me drone on for 20 minutes, so I've invited back Amanda Beebe, a client advisor on my team, to fire random questions my way, and hopefully we can have an entertaining and informative dialogue. But before I do that, I want to take a minute to preview some of the topics I'm already working on for upcoming episodes. We'll take a look at millennials and how they're impacting the economy and markets. We'll do a deep talk about how it's changing. We'll look at philanthropy and nonprofits and how best to manage those assets, And I'm working on an episode for later in the year in which we'll look at changes in the fight against cancer and what the investment implications could be. All these topics and your usual market news, hopefully less of that than normal, and we have a quieter year than we did in 2018. Anyway, back to today's episode. Amanda, thanks for joining.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, the ball is yours. You talk to clients and investors all day, so what's on their mind and what should I answer for them? ready? I'll do my best.
1: All right, let's come full circle here. What was your outlook going into 2018 this time last year? How does it compare to your outlook now going into 2019?
0: So my outlook at the start of 2018 was, I guess, wrong. Um, So when we started 2018 12 months ago, the basic outlook was that volatility increase. I got that one right. And forecast return for stocks was in the six to seven percent range globally, depending on where you looked in the world. That's side I got wrong. But but I'll I'll take the privilege of saying that I think what I got right is that that's been the firm in our forecast for the better part of two or three years. And if you look at 2018 in the context of 12 months, which is you, you should, but if you stretch it out to a two-year period and include 2017, then all of a sudden the, the forecast looks m- much more accurate. And, and let me try and make more sense of that because i think i just spouted a whole bunch of numbers and made no sense so over a two-year period and i hate to do a 12-month forecast because i just don't think you know much in the short term but if you were to think over two years at the start of 2017 said basically the same thing volatility will increase markets will return call it six percent a year in 2017 the s p 500 so the u.s market was up 21 percent last year it was down four so you put those two numbers together, and you wind up with like a rate of return of 8 or so. I'm forecasting in the 6s over three-year period, so my two-year forecast looks darn near on target. The problem is, year-to-year, year markets can be anywhere. And, and I think the challenge here is that people get, and I understand this, what's the market going to do this quarter, this month, this year, and the truth is nobody really knows. In the broader context, what I would say for 2019, because I'm supposed to have a crystal ball here, is that I, I think it's clear volatility is going to continue. Some of that is because of the economy, and a lot of that is going to be geopolitical related to issues in the U.S. and abroad. Now, volatility can work both ways. I think a great example of this is the last weeks of 2018. Think of Christmas week. The market is in a free fall through December. Investors get nervous. There's worries that, you know, the market's in meltdown mode. And then today after Christmas, we have the largest single point gain in the history of markets. The Dow's up over 1,000 points and, and rallies for basically the remainder of the year. That's volatility on the down and upside. So you have to think about it in both directions. So I I think volatility is here to stay. In terms of return on the stock side, I'd still tell you it's something like a 6% rate of return, but I I feel silly saying that over a 12 month period. I think you have to think about that over a two or three year period. I'll just take one minute to mention the bond market because I don't think people think about it enough. Forecasts on the bond market were really accurate. What we said is that the Fed would, would raise rates four times. That's what happened. The question was, what would the impact be on bond portfolios? And I'll focus on municipal bonds here for the sake of argument, but you could have a conversation about treasuries if you wanted. We're talking about high credit quality munis. Our portfolios are up about 1%. It's not so much an issue about our portfolios. It's more the question of, in an environment where rates are going to rise, what do you think is going to happen to bond performance in general? And And the basic view was, without getting into too many numbers here, if rates rose much faster than we thought, bonds would probably run negative. Again, high credit quality, intermediate, municipal bonds. If for some reason rates came down, bonds would do really well, but that was not the expectation. For rates to come down, the economy would have had to have cratered in 2018, which didn't happen. And if rates rose slowly, we thought bonds would be a 0-1-2% asset class, which has wound up being exactly right. That's likely to be the case going forward, except... Now that interest rates have gone up, you're gonna get more yield along the way. And the longer your time horizon is, the higher the yield is, the better off you are.
1: All good stuff. Now, this might feel like a really long time ago, but let's go back to just before October of this year, 2018. How was it that the US stock market was the only asset class outperforming? Is that common? Do you see that very often? Again, I want to say this feels like a distant memory.
0: It is a distant memory because the U.S. market ended up down. So it's uncommon that you would have any asset class, but let's just pick on U.S. equity being up, where virtually every other asset class is down. By the end of October, emerging markets were down 10% on an index basis. International markets were off 8 to 10%. Bonds were flat to slightly negative. So it was highly unusual that the U.S. market was the one outlier vis-a-vis everything else. I think two things broadly changed in fourth quarter. There became concerns about the U.S. economy decelerating. And think people started to get more and more concerned about how much longer could the economic recovery last. At the same time, the Fed continued to raise rates, and I think that got market participants nervous. And so that combination of those two things, and then I think the increase of, maybe not the increase of geopolitical risk, but market participants saying, you know, if the economy is slowing, n- not going negative, but growing at a slower rate, so what we would call decelerating, and the geopolitical environment globally is questionable, maybe I don't want to own U.S. equity in that environment. And so I think that's what happened in December which is one of the reasons why treasury treasury bonds, which were up to 3.2, came down to today, call it 2.6%. The treasury bond falling in yield from 3.2 to 2.6, some people listening are going to say, that sounds bad. What that means is that the price went up. So when people get nervous about investments, generally stock, they sell their stock and they go to something safe. Cash is obviously safe at the bank. A U.S. treasury is thought of as very safe. When people want to buy them, the amount that the Treasury pays, the yield goes down. So when you hear the U.S. Treasury went from 3.2 to 2.6, that's a 10-year Treasury. Actually, the price of those bonds went up. Think about it. More people wanted them, so the price went up, and the amount of yield that the government had to offer, per se, went down.
1: So on the topics of bonds, what would you say to your listeners right now who are fearful of the headlines that they see related to the the impending inverted yield curve?
0: Um, so the, the yield curve is not inverted right now. Um, on a very technical basis, the the one- and two-year treasuries are inverted. We're getting into minutiae of bonds here that I, I just don't think is relevant for the average investor. Um, the general concern is this. If the yield curve is inverted, which means that in simple English, if you went to the bank and you went to your local bank and they were going to pay you, I'm making up a number here, 4% on a one-year CD, and the treasury to to lock up your money for 30 years paid you 2 that would be inverted because the money that you had at the bank that you could get any day was paying you 4% and money you locked up at, in a treasury for 30 years was paying you 2. That would be a unbelievably unusual environment and a highly highly inverted yield curve. What that would tell you is the future looks really bleak because I'm only going to get 2% 30 years out and I can get 4% today. So when this yield curve notion gets inverted it means that short-term money is paying you longer than long is paying you more than long-term money. Typically, the longer you lock your money up, the more you should get paid because you're giving up the freedom to have that money. So people get nervous around this notion of if the yield curve's inverted, uh-oh, that means something bad's going to happen. And it might, but it also might not. And again, this is a little technical, but if you were to look at yields in the U.S. as compared to Europe, particularly Germany, or you thought about yields in Japan. Our yields look really attractive as compared to the rest of the world. So it's possible that there are a lot of foreign buyers, and there's data to support this, that are buying short-term U.S. bonds that are throwing off what the yield curve looks like. So I don't think it tells you that the economy is going into recession. It's just one of a number of factors that people watch and think about when they think about more market participants, people who are professional investors, look at and say, that's a signal. What does it mean? And what can I deduce from it? I think you got to be careful to look at any one signal in in what we do and determine that that guarantees you what's going to happen in the future. You have to look at a number of different things, stocks, bonds, currencies, commodities, um, analytical data, what you hear from people who work in other parts of the markets to come up with a conclusion about what you think is going to happen holistically going forward.
1: There is a phrase in behavioral finance that you've referenced before in your podcast. What's the word there? It's... It's like when you latch onto like a particular, anchoring? Yes, anchoring. I anchoring. feel like that's what you were just
0: Um yeah, I mean I think there's an there's a there's a element of that. <clears throat> I I think a better example of anchoring or recency bias. Actually now in sports people talk about recency bias all the time. It's like what happened yesterday is going to happen tomorrow. I think when you go through a fourth quarter in markets which was tough in particular in the US People get in this notion that that's all that's going to happen tomorrow. That's going to continue and continue and continue. They, they remember what's most recent to them and things that happened a long time in the past seem to fade away. So I think there's that bias. Um, this wouldn't really speak to recency bias, but what I think is also happening is for some investors, not everyone, there is a, and, and I use this term loosely, I don't mean it literally, like a PTSD from 2008 where... That is what rings in, I think, investors' heads when they go through a bear market or a correction and they forget that you know in February and March of 2008, 10 months ago, market sold off 10%. Even while the market went what felt like straight up from 2009 to today, there were 10% corrections throughout it. But you just sort of forget that when you look at the larger chart. The 08 experience, which was so acute and really terrible for a number of investors, I think that one harkens back in their head. And when they go through any correction, they think, oh, my God, here's the next 08. Maybe, unlikely, and we can talk about why or why not that would be, and and that might be an interesting idea for another podcast, but but I would say to you, this, at least today, doesn't look anything like 08. The financial conditions don't look like 08, But, but what can happen for some investors is that the emotional reaction feels a lot like 08.
1: Thank you. All right. I know, Mark. You have a real opinion on the overlap, at least recently, between politics now blurring into the capital markets and finance. So I
0: don't want to talk about it.
1: <laughs> I don't want to talk about Donnie J either. But we can keep this as objective as possible. So, how? Have no, it's
0: not. It's not. It's it's that's my point isn't political as much as it is. When, when we're having conversations. So I've been at Bernstein sixteen years, something like that. Uh, what I would say is different about my conversations with clients over the last year or more is that the conversations have become more macro and geopolitical than they were five or ten years ago. Fair. And by the way, I think some of that is reasonable, right? If you're talking about good, bad, and different trade and global trade, whether it's us and China or whether it's NAFTA, these are issues that impact economics, right? So it's reasonable to talk about politics or geopolitical issues in the scope of a financial advisor's conversation, right? Brexit is about finance in a lot of ways, not only, but part of it. Um, What went on with Greece and funding for banks and whether or not the euro would exist. It is, yes, it's about politics, but it's also clearly about finance. So I think it's more relevant in conversations. That's not to say we also haven't had global issues throughout. I mean, I I was here post-September eleven. Um, I was here through, you know, the war in Iraq and all those things in Afghanistan. We didn't really talk about that with clients because they they weren't about, in the most fundamental, they weren't about the market, right? The market may have reacted to that bad news, but the core of it wasn't market. A lot of what we're talking about today in politics is deeply connected to financial markets. So I think it's reasonable to talk about it. it, but I would say the reason I said I don't want to talk about it is. It's, I would argue it's impossible to forecast, right? Um, whether you're listening to me or CNBC or Bloomberg or Fox News or CNN, it doesn't matter the politics of it. I would just argue that there's a lot of uncertainty about how any of these things will play out. And by the way, uncertainty doesn't mean bad. It just means uncertain, right? A lot of the stuff could go really well. A lot of stuff could go really badly. We, we don't know. I'm not sure that anyone in D.C. knows. I'm not sure that even some of the global players themselves know, right? They're they're playing high stakes chess or risk or whatever. And you don't know how that's going to play out. It is easier, I think, for us in financial markets to look at a company, Apple, which has been in the, the news lately, or GE or whatever, and say, this is the product they make. This is their cost structure. This is their business. This is the new product line. This is the new management team. And here's what I think the earnings are going to be for that company over the next three to five years. I I think that's more tangible for us. It's harder for us to say with any certainty, here's how trade relations between U.S. and China are going to play out. And now that I know that, here's what I'm going to do in my portfolio. Because the truth is I don't think any of us really know what that's going to be. And, and so that leaves you in a position, so then what do you do? I, I think paradoxically, that doesn't mean you take your money out of markets because in, in, in a way that is that is making a decision that's saying, I don't know what's going to happen, so I'm not going to play the game and, and therefore I'm going to deviate from whatever my long-term plan is because I'm just going to go to cash. That may or may not be right. I think the better way to play that is to, to ask the question, does the investment strategy I have in any and all risk environments, good and bad, make sense for me? If the answer is no, you should do something different. If the answer is yes, then I think you have to stick with it through this period of time. Because if you tell me that you're worried about X, Y, Z, let's just use China-U.S. trade relations, I don't think that's unreasonable. It's not unreasonable that that goes really bad. But it's also not unreasonable that that goes really well and markets rally substantially because of that. I would argue you don't know. I would argue I don't know. And to make a positioning bet around that seems wrong to me. Going to cash is making a positioning bet around that. It's almost saying, I know for sure this won't go well. So I would basically say, if this doesn't go well, can I withstand the the exposure to risk I have in the portfolio? For some people, that may be no, and they should definitely reevaluate. For some, they may say, I don't love being in an uncertain world, but I, I have an appropriate amount of risk for me in an uncertain world. That's why I think you have to frame the geopolitical in a a sort of humble way. I don't know. Therefore, am I okay with the exposure I have to not knowing something?
1: All right. So on the topic of just speculation and volatility, this brings me back to my favorite podcast of yours that was about high frequency trading. How would you have, like, what are then the key takeaways from that podcast in light of the volatility that we saw on Christmas Eve and the day after Christmas?
0: My first takeaway is don't trade against Ken Spellman. Um, <clears throat> he was the guest on that podcast. So that's my first takeaway. If he's on the other side of the trade, run. My second, I guess, broad takeaway is, <clears throat> so some of what we talked about on that podcast, which is the most recent one you can get on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this, is the, is the idea that high-frequency trading is neither good nor bad, but it is real and that it does exacerbate volatility in markets. The way I've thought about it is, Just pick an individual stock, but you could say this for the whole market. If the market's up 200 points for the first six hours of the trading day, and it's 2 or 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and the market's up 1% or half a percent and that's 100 points or 200 points, that may make sense given the market news and what some of the underlying stocks are doing that day. For the market then to run up 1,000 points, I don't know what any company did between 3 and 4 o'clock to be worth 2% more than it was the day before. Um, no, maybe there is news that makes it warranted, right? Apple had bad news yesterday, and the stock is down a bunch. Whether it's the right amount, who knows? But there was news, and the stock trades around that. But for the whole entire world or individual companies to be worth 2% more or 3 or 4% more in a day or a week or a month or, in particular, an hour, that seems crazy to me. It seems like noise. If I said this about your house and you priced your house minute to minute, that would, I think, seem nuts. But in public equity markets, that, that's how we price it. Remember, it's also the the marginal trade is how we price a stock, meaning the last tick of it, the last person who traded it, sets the price. That doesn't mean it's the right or wrong price. It's just the last agreed upon price in the stock. And sometimes that moves quickly. And with electronic trading and computers who aren't typically thinking anything about a business or an economy, they're, they're just looking at data, and equations of data, I think you just have to you have to accept that as noise. If you're a long-term investor, I, I I think the other way to think about it is there's like two or three games going on at the same time, right? There are people trading second by second, even fractions of a second, against each other, and yes, they are trading the same stocks that you may be. But if you're trying to hold the stock for the next three years, five years, ten years, whatever, who's trading in it? This minute, or this hour, or this day, yeah, it might make you feel better or worse about what your statement looks like. But the question is, did when you go to sell it three, five, ten years from now, or three months from now, is it at the price you want it to be at? And the noise between now and then is really just noise. I mean, it's interesting, it makes you feel better and worse, but it's ultimately noise.
1: All right, how do you think that heightened volatility... High-frequency trading, at least this year, has changing the conversation surrounding active versus passive management?
0: I don't know that it's changing much. I think it could be playing into a similar phenomenon, which is if you have a whole bunch of money high-frequency trading, right? you, you, you may have pri- price distortion in the short term, and that could be in the last hour of trading, on the first hour of trading, what have you. If you have so much on the market in passive, not thinking about where they allocate capital. So passive means buying a Vanguard index fund or an S&P 500 index fund, right? And you basically get the whole market. And, and to get really technical about it, you get 500 different companies and the biggest share of those 500 companies you get are the biggest companies in the 500. That probably got way too technical. I apologize. But you're, you're allocating your capital to just the biggest people. And the smallest people get the sh- smallest share of the money you put in that index fund. That's not really effectively allocating your capital. The way capitalism theoretically should work is that you allocate capital to the people who who use it the best, which is another way of saying the people who are going to make you the most money on your money, the companies, the stocks are going to make you the most money of your money, are the people you should give your capital to, not just the biggest. If the biggest company is slowly going to go out of business, you wouldn't put money with it. When you buy an index fund, it doesn't really think about that. It just says, Apple's really big, put a lot of money in Apple, and the 500th biggest company is much smaller, put a little bit of the money in Apple, uh, in the 500th biggest company. Maybe that's right, maybe that's wrong, but I-, I would say that also can create price distortions. Because for capitalism to work in a healthy way, this gets a little theoretical, you got to allocate capital to the best use of it. And an index fund doesn't do that. So... I think there's a point where you actually fight against that trend and you say if if I'm allocating capital smartly, I don't know if I'm going to get I'm going to get paid for this this week, this month, this year, but over time that should be a much better way to allocate my capital than just size order. Right? If I was building a, you know, a baseball lineup, one of the ways to do it is just pick the tallest or heaviest players. It's a reasonable way, it may do well, but I, it would be better to be more strategic about it. And so I would think about it that way, to to make a probably poor sports analogy. Pick who you believe are the best players to return your investment, not the biggest. And So I think that's another area of price distortion which is out there today.
1: What are your thoughts on oil?
0: My thoughts on oil? Um Well, so oil's in the 40s. It's obviously down a whole lot. I think that's, and there's been some press about that, and, and our firm would say that some of that press is right, some of it's wrong. Um, look, there's concern that global growth is going down, uh, global economic growth, whether it's in the U.S. or Europe or, or China. Almost everybody, including us, has revised global growth or economic forecast down. We were at 3.1% for 2019. We're, at, we're now at 29 So slow-growing economies. There are worries that, though, that, that may be too optimistic. So if you're worried about the growth of economies, the need for oil, since oil is the engine of a lot of things, right? the demand side of the oil equation could be down. At the same time, the supply side is up, meaning in the most simple terms, right, the U.S. is producing a whole lot of oil. Actually, we're as large a producer now as Saudi Arabia or Russia, so, so we're a major oil producer on the global scale. So if you have a lot of supply and you have worries about lower demand, the price of oil goes down. Um, I, I think that's the long and short of the story. Most of our forecasts have oil normalized somewhere in the $40 to $60 barrel range. Um, I, I'm, I'm not a commodities trader, but in my experience here, it seems as though those commodities sense to overshoot on the way up. I remember when oil was 120 and then they seem to overshoot on the way down, and I've seen oil in the twenties. So I, I wouldn't get too concerned in the short term. Uh, you know, I think it's just a supply demand story, which is some of it fundamental based on oil, and some of it based on worries about global growth. So I'm going to wrap it up now. I've droned on for about 24 minutes. I think that's a, enough time for all of you. Um, I look forward to being in touch with you more and our upcoming episodes. To the listeners, if there are any questions on this topic or, or anything else, again, I can be reached at mark.pensner at bernstein.com or 212-969-6655. Make sure to check this out. You can like us on iTunes or Google Play. That obviously helps us get more listeners, and that is always much appreciated. Until next time, thank you.